Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us once again and open the word of God to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to continue in, in, in the story. Um, I'm going to recap, but I'm not going to recap as far back and, and, and tell you the whole recap each week. That would get longer and longer. The recap would be as long as a sermon, so I'm not going to do that. But we started out in this journey at the very, very beginning of it all, that, uh, that, that we started with God, that the Bible, the Word of God is His story. It's His story. And throughout these themes that we're going to be looking at from the very beginning until the very ending of it all, I want you to, once again, you pay attention to the upper story and the lower story that's happening. A lot of times when we live in this world, things are happening and life is happening all around us and we can maybe miss out on what God is doing because God is working on the upper story. He is at work and we see that through God's people. We see that through the Word of God. We see that through the themes of Scripture. And what we love, uh, what I love about the scripture is, you know, it gives us these people um, that we look at as, as heroes of the faith, and they were ordinary, average, broken people that needed God. They needed redemption. And you see them going through trials and tribulations, and I think that sometimes we get, we get these glimpses of their lives because they're like us. They're going through some hard things, but God is working. God is at work. Even though we may not be able to see what he is doing, he is working in the midst of of your life for his glory. And so we need to pay attention even in our lives, in the mundane, in the average, every ordinary day that God is working. And that's why Paul said, set your heart and your mind on things above, not just on earthly things. If we live just in the earthly realm and just what was happening, it could get very depressing and very hard, but God is moving, God is working, and we pay attention, as Paul says, to the unseen and not just what is seen. So we see at the beginning that God creates everything, that people, we see God's passion of his creation is to create people, create people for a relationship with himself. They are given the gift, as we understand in this thing of relationship, they're given the gift of free will. He's not going to just create robots and create people that will just do everything that he makes them do. He gives them this gift. He gives us the gift of free will. And then they abuse that gift and they rebel against God by disobeying what he had set up. He set up standards as he sets up for every human being. And his standards of living um, are, are not to kill our joy, but to ultimately to give us the greatest freedom and the greatest uh, life that we could possibly live. But he gives us those standards of living. And says, I've called you to do certain things and there's certain things I want you not to do because it will destroy you. And I have a plan for your life, and I don't want you to negatively affect that. And they rebelled against God, they disobeyed Him, and then they, were, they took on the sin nature, and the consequences of that sin uh, were passed down to us, and so we are all born into sin. The Bible says that for all have sinned. All means all, everybody. That we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glorious standard. But ultimately in redemption we see His how God responds to that failure is that he sends Jesus and he redeems us to restore what is lost. And interestingly enough, surprisingly, to restore what is lost, he uses people. Broken, fallible people to help restore that which was lost to a lost world because he places Christ. Ultimately, Jesus did it, but then he puts the life of Jesus in us to restore those things and to be called 
to do what he has called us to do. Last week, we looked at Moses, how God used him to call the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. Most of you are familiar with me. They are in slavery. God calls Moses to come. I am the Yahweh. He is the undefinable one. He is only God. So he reveals his identity, his name of who he is. He also reveals his power through the 10 plagues. We see those 10 plagues unleashed on Egypt. Each one of those was associated with a God of Egypt. Once again, God displaying his power saying, I am the one and only God. Other gods are fake gods. I am the one and the only. So he displays his name, his power, and then his plan of redemption through Passover, that thing that we call Passover, where they, the, 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 the Hebrew slaves, they would put the, the, the blood of a lamb on their doorpost and on the sides of their door. And, and, and God said, whenever, whenever I see the blood, I will pass over. And that judgment, the 10th plague, was all the firstborn in the homes would die. And he said, if I see the blood, I will pass over. And we see again through this Old Testament story, the plan of redemption, that when we say yes to the Lamb of God, Jesus the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, and we say, I, I, I need you, I give my life to you, I surrender my life to you, then we are not under the judgment of death, but we have passed from death to life. That is good news. And so today we find them out of Egypt and in the desert. And so this is God and his people. So we move from Genesis to Exodus. We see them leaving. We see them coming in to the wilderness. Now, the amazing thing is this. Of course, when we look at them, we're going to see a lot of ourselves. Do not look at them with a critical eye and say, I'd never do that. We would. We are all fallible. We're all broken. So the amazing thing is, is that you notice in reading the stories how the people, they got out into the wilderness and they began to grumble and complain. Now, you would think logically they are out of Egypt. They are out of bondage. They are out of slavery, that they would be thrilled God has helped us, not just helped us, but we have seen his miraculous, mighty, powerful, miracle-working hand on display. I mean, they saw some mighty, powerful miracles. And you would think that they would just say how awesome God is and we're thrilled to not be in slavery again. But you see them come out and immediately, I mean, it, it was not too many days from being rescued and seeing the Red Sea part of that they begin to grumble and complain. We don't have water. We don't have food. Have you drawn us out here? Moses, what are you doing? Moses, who died and left you in charge, we should go back to Egypt where we at least have something to drink and something to eat. So they see the, the, the miraculous display of God to get them out, and then all of a sudden their hearts now, they're saying, let's go back into bondage and slavery. Grumbling, complaining. Part of the story, too, is that they wandered. If you fast forward, they wandered for 40 years. God had called them into the promised land. He said, this is a promised place where I'm going to bring you. And if you look at the map, it's not that long of a journey to get there from where they were. Some people say that, you know, there was about 2 million of them, so maybe it would take a little bit longer, but it's only about a 10-day walking journey, maybe longer, again, if you have 2 million. So let's bump that up to maybe a month at the most. 
They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because I, 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 and, and this, this sin of grumbling and complaining is a huge sin that we must all look at in our heart. It is one of the best ways to prevent you from walking in the promises that God has for you. And they went and they complained about this. They grumbled. They grumbled about leadership. They grumbled about not having enough to eat. They grumbled about not having. And you see this play out. Nothing was good enough. And they even wanted to go back into slavery. So we see this play out in our current day. People move from bondage to freedom. They don't always know how to handle their freedom. This is seen in people that have come out of prison. Because a lot of times prisoners, especially if they've been in for any lengthy period of time, that's all they know and they understand, and they don't really understand what true freedom is. Because freedom isn't just doing whatever you feel like doing. Jesus sets us free, but he also has a plan and a mission for our lives. We come out of the bondage and the slavery and, and the children of Israel, that bondage and slavery they were in Egypt is, is kind of a symbol, if you will, of our own sin, that we're in sin, that we're born into sin. And when Jesus saves us, he pulls us out of bondage and slavery. But what will keep us looking back to bondage and slavery is when we don't understand who we are in him and we begin to grumble and complain and things aren't working out like I thought they would and I don't know if I like this or not. And, and we begin to look back almost at our life of sin and saying, I think I'd rather go back there. But freedom isn't just doing whatever we feel like. Jesus sets us free, but he calls us with a plan and a mission and a purpose. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians. He said, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, don't be drawn back into the bonds of slavery, of sin. It was for freedom that he set you free. I always get a kick out of some young people that I have ministered to in the past, and they having a problem with their parents, and they say, you know, I can't wait till I'm 18, then I'm going to be free. And I just kind of chuckle under my breath or throw my head back laughing under my breath. So... Um, I'm like, do you know what freedom is? Because you think, you know, parents, that's, that's why we're told to honor our parents is because that's a little training ground for what we like to call employment. Because you're going to have parents wherever you go. We don't call them parents, but we call them boss. We call them banker. That, that, uh, we call them landlord. Because if you think that just getting out from underneath my parents and just living wildly and doing whatever you want. If that's freedom to you, just wait for a season and we'll see how that works out for you. Because the landlord, if you're living somewhere, obviously you're not going to be homeless. And I like to ask them that. Are you going to be homeless? No, I'm going to live somewhere. Well, you're going to have a landlord. Are you going to take care of that place? What if they come, they're looking for their rent. They tell you to clean. What are you going to do then? What, are you going to want a, you're going to want a car, right? How are you going to pay for that car? What about a boss that tells you what to do? I heard one kid say this was absolutely hysterical. I can say it because he didn't go to church here. He goes, I can't wait to be free from out from underneath my parents. I said, what are you planning to do? He said, go to the military. Hmm. <laughs> He said, come talk to me after basic training. We'll have a conversation about freedom. <laughs> but you see how we are, and I look at these extreme cases. But the Israelites kind of, they came out of slavery. They didn't really understand true freedom. 
It wasn't just, okay, you're, you're out from underneath the, the, you know, the bond of slavery. Now just do whatever you want to do. No, God was speaking to his people. He was drawing them to himself. And that's what we're going to kind of look at today. And so they didn't understand that God had called them to a vision and a mission. And so we're going to look at this, this kind of contrast today. God stepped in to help them see that they weren't just saved from something, but they were saved to something. If you want to cue in on something today, that, that would be a phrase that you're not just saved from something. You're not just saved from sin. You are actually saved to something. You're saved to a purpose, a mission, and a calling that God has for your life. That's why a lot of people, they're, so, they're thrilled, they give their lives to Christ, and he f- forgives you of your sins. There's an element of feeling uh, you know, freedom inside, and then they don't really understand that now they're called on mission with God, an adventure with God. And so the Israelites were not just saved from something, they were saved to something. They were more than just saved from slavery, they were saved for a purpose. And again, not just to go and live a life of whatever they wanted to do, but they were saved to be in relationship with God. Look at Exodus 19, 5 through 6. We're going to pull this passage up here, and it's up on the screen if you don't have your own Bible. But it says this. So God reveals that the people aren't just saved from something, but to something. God says this, now if you obey me fully, so he's talking to them, he's brought them out. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. He says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so I'm not just calling you out of slavery, I'm calling you into something. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God calls them a kingdom of priests. You know, priests represented God to people, and so God tells them that they would that will be their role as a nation. Priests were earthly representations of God to people. And so he's saying, corporately, you're gonna represent me to the world. As my, as my special treasure, if you do what I'm asking you to do, and you understand, I'm going to cue in on that in a moment, but this was a conditional promise. If you do what I ask you to do, I'm going to let you represent me to the world because that's your new purpose. Your purpose is no longer making bricks, but God, building God's kingdom on the earth, representing God as we are called. Let's look at the next slide because that passage might sound familiar, but God reveals that people aren't just saved from something, but to something. And our calling, First Peter, this is in the New Testament. So Old Testament, this is the same calling that we have in the New Testament. So God was speaking to Israel now, and through Peter, he's speaking to us as the church. He said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. That's what he told them, a holy nation, a peculiar people, some more peculiar than others. To show, listen to this, to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Isn't that a great promise? God has called you out of darkness into his glorious light. And he didn't just call you out of darkness into his glorious light just so that you can now live for yourself. He has called you as a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a holy nation, to show forth the praises of him, to put God on display. Not by how good I am, but how good God is. That people would see not me, but he would see Jesus and the work of God in me because I'm broken and I need Christ. But broken people revealing God. God knew that in order for the Israelites to represent him well, they needed to know him. 
his purpose, and that's why he's speaking to them. And he speaks to us. But even in the Old Testament, God needed to teach them about his nature. So he brings them to Mount Sinai in the desert where he reveals himself to them. And now listen to this. We're going to go to the next slide. This sounds horrifying and terrifying, but there was a reason and a purpose God did it this way. But God reveals himself to the people, so he calls them. He's given them the promise. You guys, are you tracking along? I've saved you not just from something, but to something. You're going to be a, my special treasure. You're going to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests to re- represent, the, represent me to the nations. And so that's also our promise we see in 1 Peter. But God brings them and he says, all right, I made you that promise. Now on the morning of the third day, here he is. He brings the people to himself. He's got Moses there who's the leader. There was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from the, like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. There was a right way. You hear that the people trembled? We would have too. This is the holy, awesome God in all of his glory and all of his splendor coming down and meeting with the people. And it was a, I mean, you just, the, the thunder, lightning, a thick cloud, all of this stuff. And they were, they were in, there was a holy and reverent fear of the Lord. So why is God revealing himself? It seems like he's trying to scare them to death, doesn't it? You know, why doesn't he come as like, you know, like a nice little lamb that seems very innocent and we can kind of pet him and, and touch him. And, but it seems like, whoa, this is a mighty good. Things are trembling and there's an earthquake, there's smoke and there's fire. And it's like, is he trying to scare them to death? It doesn't seem exactly like the best way to go about showing them who he was. Or was it? God was revealing himself like this to make sure they understood who he was and his holiness. That he was not like any other God that they had ever heard about. you got to understand, they were in slavery. They saw the Egyptians. They were, you know, they, they were forced into slavery. And so Egyptians had many gods, and the Canaanites had many gods, and these were very immoral gods. And God is saying, I am holy, and I am mighty, and I am powerful. And once again, reminding them, as he did with the plagues, of saying, I am the one and I'm the only God. You need to be reminded of this. There is no other God like me. And he's saying, as he had said before, I am Yahweh. I am Almighty, the one and only God. And you don't just go stumbling into the presence of God or approach him lightly. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he is that same God in that same holiness that exists today. That's why we should never approach God lightly. Now, we'll see through Christ that we can approach him as our father, but he's still holy and he's still mighty. And so he brings them to him. What we see next, God reveals this, uh, this what we call the Ten Commandments, this countercultural moral code of ethics, this standard that he is going to present to them. And he gives through Moses. He wanted to distinguish himself from all the other gods. By, by, by people that live lives of moral purity in contrast to the world around them. 
And that's why he was saying, if you do what I ask you to do, you will be representatives of me on the earth. And there is a standard in which I'm asking you to live. And so God was, is, and is holy, and he was requiring his people to walk in holiness too. And then he lays out the ten commandments. The first four relate to God. Our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. Once again, I am Yahweh. I'm the one and only God. These commandments are still good. We didn't get rid of them. Jesus didn't get rid of them. Jesus even said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. But he said, you shall have no other gods before me. I know that there are many gods and people worship different gods, but I am the one and I am the only. Next is this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Because this would be what false religions and the Canaanites, the Egyptians, you know, they would make these statues and they would say, this is a God. We see that in some world religions today. Statues and these things that are carved and saying that is the representation of God. And God is saying, I am not contained within a little statue of your making. And so he's giving them these things. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That his name should be revered as holy. Isn't it interesting that in our culture that the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ is used as a curse word? No other gods are used that, like that. There's a comedian, some of you guys saw him, Darren Strebel. He said, you never hear anybody stub their toe and say, oh, Buddha. Why is that? Because there is a holiness and there is a reverence, and the enemy knows that there is a reverence to the name of Jesus and the name of God. And we should never use his name lightly and be very careful how we hold and respect and honor the name of God. And the next one is about the Sabbath day of keeping hold of the Sabbath day of rest. Doug had that word about rest. Resting, not just taking a nap, resting, but resting, I think, too, in the mindset that God is in control. That he has got it all under control. So then the next sixth commandment relate to how we, uh, is about how we relate to others. So let's look at those really quickly. Honor your father and your mother. There's that freedom passage, young people, because you're tra- it's training you. It's training you for life, and so you honor your father and your mother. Next one, you shall not murder. That's obvious. You shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. And number nine, you shall not bear false witness. Number 10, you shall not covet or want what you do not have. And you see these 10 commandments that God gives his people, and you can see how they are still good today. And that God is saying that through these, it's about how you love and honor God first, and then it's about how you honor and love people above yourselves. To cast aside self-interest. To cast aside your greed and your selfishness. Again, this was very counterculture because back in those days and even today, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, but it was always about you. It's about what you could give. That God existed for you. Then I, I, I make a sacrifice to this false God because I'm just trying to get something for me. 
And so this was a counterculture idea that God was saying. He says, love and honor God above all and love and honor people. What did Jesus say? He says that all the commandments can be summed in two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said they can be summed up in those two things. So God's giving them guidelines, a standard of what it means to be his people. More than rules. They were being called to reveal him and represent him on earth by setting a higher standard of what it meant to be his people. God was basically saying, others will see you living the higher standard, then they'll know that I am God. And this applies to us. Remember what Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he took those commandments to even a greater, greater length because he said this is more than just rule following. This is more than just trying to be morally strong. He said it's heart issues. That's why he said if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with your heart. Yes, the commandment says don't commit adultery, but I'm saying if you look at her with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Yes, I understand the commandment says don't murder, but if you hate somebody... He said, that's like you're murdering them in your heart, so you're guilty of that. He said, these are heart issues. These are more than rules. Because he desires to be seen in and through us, Jesus shining in us. Because our goal should never be to make ourselves happy or trying to figure out how to make the world happy, but it's to honor and please God, to reflect the character of God. Look at what Peter says, and we'll go to the next passage here. Second Peter, this is our calling, Second Peter 1, 6-9, with all diligence. Listen to what he's saying, and you have to understand this in context of a relationship with Jesus. He's not just saying, just try to be more moral. He's saying, with all diligence, add to your faith moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, add knowledge. And to your knowledge, add self-control. And to your self-control, add perseverance. And to your perseverance, add godliness. And to your godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to your brotherly kindness, add love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Do you see what he's saying? If you walk in this way, you won't be unfruitful. He's called us to reveal himself. He's called us to reveal him to the world. But doesn't that feel like a little bit of like he's just stacking weights upon you? Add to this, moral excellence and purity and He's saying, you know what he's saying? You're going to need Jesus to live this way. You're going to need to understand this comes down to a surrendered life, a relationship with Christ. It's going to be more than you just trying to be more moral. Because I want you to be fruitful. I want to be useful. Now, the Ten Commandments have brought a lot of confusion to people. Or you see passages like this. They bring a lot of confusion to people. And I hope to maybe eliminate some of that confusion today. People have misunderstood the purpose of the Ten Commandments or moral and upright living and moral excellence. They think that if you live moral, you keep the Ten Commandments, that's your ticket to heaven. Or if you fail to live that way, that's your ticket to hell. But neither is true. Yes, we are called to walk in moral excellence, to live by the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are still relevant today. Jesus showed how relevant they are by raising the bar. But we see a different covenant that God gave from Abraham to Moses. Remember Abraham, he said, you're my children. 
you will be my child, you will be my son, and through you there will be many nations that will be birthed through you. And that's just a one-way covenant that is promised. That's like our children. You know, those of you who have kids, you understand that you love them, that they're your child, that even if they do messed up, crazy, weird, awful things, that you still love them. You don't, you, you don't, it's not like that you, you don't like what they do, but you don't stop loving them. That was that one-way covenant. There is a covenant that we have in Christ belonging to God that we are his children and we are the promises of God because he loves us and we're his children. The covenant he gave to Moses was conditional. If you follow this, if you follow these commandments, you will be my, representative, my representatives to the earth. You will be my chosen people. you obey the covenant. And so what does this mean for us? Salvation, coming to know Christ, salvation doesn't come through moral works or following commandments. If it did, remember the Pharisees that lived in Jesus' day? You know, they were upright, they were moral police, they followed the Ten Commandments. They could say, you know, I, I've done this and I've done this, and they, they, they followed the commandments. I mean, even Jesus with the rich young ruler, he says, you know the commandments. And the, and the guy said, yeah, I followed the commandments since I was a child. But Jesus was trying to point and say, you guys are missing something because you're missing the heartbeat of it. You're following the rules, but you're missing on the relationship with God. That following the commandments is important. Moral excellence is important. But if you get the order messed up, you, you've missed it. You live moral, excellent lives because you love Jesus with all your heart. Not, I follow moral, I'm trying to be more moral excellent so that I can get Jesus to love me to get to go to heaven. You see the difference? We have to get that right. Just being more moral is not going to help you. A surrendered life to Christ, trusting in his sacrifice is what gets us to heaven. And then we pray and we walk with him every day through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in moral excellence, to reveal him through our lives. Do you know that God can even be seen when we mess up? Because when we get that right and we repent and we say, God, please forgive me. Or we go to someone else and we say, please forgive me. People can see the work of Jesus in you. So God speaks the Ten Commandments. And here's their response. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. That's Exodus 24.3. The people shout that. Isn't that the right response? Lord, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. And you'd expect the next sentence, and the people worship God, and they lived happily ever after. Wouldn't that be a great way to just end that story? That's not the end of the story. Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments. And he's gone up there for a little bit long time. And here's where they forget the upper story. And here we can see ourselves in there. They get a little restless. They're getting a bit nervous. They understand that they are in a place that they've never been before. Moses is taking a little long. He says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to meet with God. I'll be back and I will tell you what God tells me. Remember, they had met with God. We'll do everything God has told us to do. So he goes up. And so they get a little restless, and what do they do? They grab Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said, make an image that we can worship. 
following the customs, following the things that they had seen in other cultures. And so Aaron grabs all these, you know, everybody, you know, make your donations. Let's take your earrings and your necklaces and let's bring all this gold. And then what they did is they made a golden calf and they said, this is God. This is Yahweh is what they were saying. This is Yahweh who rescued us. We need a God that we can touch, that we can control, that we can see. Because this God who is speaking to us makes us nervous because we can't see him and we can't control him. Because they had seen in other cultures, they made gods that they could control. And this God would not be a God that would be controlled. So they make this calf, they begin to worship it. Moses comes down and there's a big party going on. And they are doing all kinds of pagan worship around this God saying, this is the God who has saved us. And what we see is, and I won't get into too much of it, but you see Moses' heart's broken over this, and he is distraught. And because there was a holy God, and God had said, when he brought the people, do what I ask you to do, we will do whatever you want us to do. And so you have people coming in contact with a holy God, and there was a lot of people that lost their lives that day. Because you see imperfect humanity coming in contact with the holy and perfect God. And it was like God was saying, did you understand what I was saying to you? I wasn't joking. I wasn't kidding with you. I pulled you out of Egypt. Not for your own purposes, not to live how you want to live, but I pulled you out so that I could place my purpose, my mission, my vision, my calling for your life. And so don't treat that lightly. And so before, again, before we look at them with a critical eye and say, how could they be so ignorant? We need to look at our own lives. Do we live for our own purpose? The Bible says our hearts are deceitful and they can lead us astray. What about your attitudes? What about your thoughts? Remember, Jesus took the Ten Commandments and he showed us that they were heart issues. What are our, our, our idols? And we see them. How could they do that? How could they make this golden calf? And even Aaron lied to Moses, if you track along with the story. He said, we threw this gold into the fire and out came this golden calf. But they had shaped it and formed it and worshipped it. But what are our idols? What do you spend your time and your money on? Because those are time and your money and your energy. That's, that's a form of your worship. What about, you, go, you, you, know, you look at them and you go, well, I don't know if I could do that, but what about your thought life and what Jesus said about adultery? What about murder? Do you hate someone or have you ever said something slanderous about them, cutting them down? What about covetousness? Do you regularly want something that you don't have? And we could go on and on, but like them, we need God. We need Jesus desperately. And we have our own gods that we, you know, our own idols are things that we can control, things that we can see and touch. And, and if things aren't going our way, and just like the children of Israel, you know, Moses was gone for a long time, so we need something that we, we can have control of. And that's where when we get our eyes off of what God is doing and things aren't going our way and, and circumstances seem to be failing around us, we can choose that road of bitterness because we want ultimately to become God ourselves. And that's the ultimate form of idolatry is we make ourselves God. I will control this. I will be in control. 
Because idolatry is being in control or giving something in control other than God. So Moses grieved. He wants to make things right with God. And so he says, I'll go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so he goes back to God and he says, what great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive them. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. So Moses is even saying, you can take my life and, you know, on behalf of the people. So there was something in him that wanted to pay for the, and atone for the sins of the people. And as noble as that was, he couldn't do it. He had to pay for his own sins. He couldn't pay for anyone else. And so God communicated to him. And this is where we get the sacrificial system that comes into play. So God begins to speak to him the Old Testament sacrificial system of the law. Which basically said this, because there is sin, something must die. Because sin is rampant, something must die. And so he set up the sacrificial system where lambs and ox and goats and different sacrificial things would have to be killed in order to atone for the people's sins, but it was an imperfect covenant until Jesus. And so there, there was this day of atonement and the high priest, and that's when they set up Aaron as the high priest. He said once a year there was a day of atonement where the, the high priest would go into this tabernacle that they built, and this tabernacle was even still God saying, I still want to be near my people. So they built up this tabernacle, and you can... You know, look at pictures of that online, or it might be in the story, but um, they would go in and the priest would make a sacrifice. He would then cleanse himself. He would go into this inner curtain and he would keep fire burning and then he would keep bread and it was the fire was the Holy Spirit and the bread was the word of God and these were symbolic things of God still wanting to be with his people. And then once a year, the high priest would go into what they called the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. The very presence of God was there. And so this was a little traveling tent before they made the permanent temple, this little traveling tent was still God's way of saying, I still love my people. So this high priest would go in, they would sacrifice lambs and kill them and blood was spilled at the altar and they would burn them and he would go into the very presence of God. And through that we see once again that God was pointing to the reality of Jesus I'm going to close with this passage in Hebrews, the work of Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, the, the once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. In the Old Testament, there was a curtain. And they're saying that his flesh was, the very, was symbolic of that curtain. The day he died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. There was a reason by that, that, why that happened. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so Jesus is our priest and he is the Lamb of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And what is all that saying? That this reality in the Old Testament the people's sin and as great and horrific as it was. And our sin, we need to understand, is great and it's horrific. 
And so because of sin, just like in that Old Testament uh, passage, something had to die. And God said, here, instead of these animals that were dying, instead of people dying for their own sin, I'm going to send my son. He will become the high priest and the lamb. So he will go and he will offer himself for you and for me. That's what this passage in Hebrews is saying, that he goes on our behalf so that we don't have to die for our sins. So there's no other way that we can be saved except through Christ. We look at the Ten Commandments and we understand that we are morally lost without him. We receive his sacrifice. We put our trust in him. He puts his spirit into us to help us live not for ourselves, but for the name and the honor and the glory of him and to serve and to love others. So we still have the same calling. And so where does that bring us? If you are guilty, if you are a sinner today, you can repent from your sins and turn to God and he will cleanse you and save you. And not just save you from sin just to live for yourself, but to save you to be on mission and in relationship with him. And we have the same issue as they had back then that we have to fight against these two extremes. That first of all, morality gets God to like me more and get me into heaven. That's wrong. And the other one, the other extreme is wrong is that the grace of God through Jesus gives me you know, he saved me, but then it gives me permission to live however I want. That's wrong. And so there is a call to morality and right living. There is a call to moral excellence to reveal Christ to others. But that comes out of a surrendered life to Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God. He takes away our sins. He's offered us a way. And we walk in relationship with him. And then we say, Jesus, I need you every day to live the life you want me to live, to reveal you to the world. And even when we blow it, we can reveal Christ to those around us. That is our calling. It's the same calling as they had back then. Is that our calling today? Let's stand and pray. If you're here today and, uh, and, and maybe... Maybe you would consider yourself that you really just you really are not walking with Christ. You're not walking with Jesus. You've never given your life to him. You've never surrendered your life to him. And maybe even that you prayed a prayer one time, but you, you would say, today, I'm not, I'm not living for God. 